Because we live in this imperfect world where they need it, but we don't pretend that this is an unregulated free market. The investment is very strongly guided by government policy, by security considerations. And it is very well possible that investment is needed today in oil and gas assets, which are absolutely essential for security in the first part of the transition and become quite problematic in the second part of the transition. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we are very pleased to welcome back to the show, Laszlo Vero. Laszlo is Vice President for Shell's Global Business Environment, where he leads their energy scenarios and geopolitical analysis. Laszlo talks with Joseph Mikett, Director of the Energy Security and Climate Change Program, about the latest scenarios developed by the Shell team called Sky and Archipelago, and how they relate to the world's current geopolitical energy and climate developments. They open the conversation talking about the energy landscape in Europe following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and whether we are seeing real and lasting change in European energy sectors as a result. Here's Joseph to start the conversation with Laszlo. Laszlo, I'm really glad that you're here today, and thank you for coming to CSIS. Thank you very much. Glad to be back. The last time you and I spoke, we spent a lot of time talking about how energy geopolitics was being rearranged after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And I still think we should start there today. In particular, as we look toward the, the summer refilling and the transition away from Russian gas, I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether Europe has really released itself of this dependency by shifting to renewables, using energy efficiency measures, buying LNG off the global market. Or is Europe too complacent in the face of this transition still going to take a couple of years? Europe has done a very impressive job, but we have been warning against complacency. So renewable investment, especially solar investment in Europe, is surging. Wind is struggling a bit, but solar is surging. We have seen a tipping point in building sector energy efficiency and also in heat pump deployment. There's a library of literature of the market failures hindering energy efficiency, primarily associated with consumer behavior and consumer information. The war shock destroyed us. Nobody needs convincing in Europe anymore that building sector energy efficiency is incredibly important, and there has been a tipping point in the deployment primarily of heat pumps and other efficient technologies. We have also seen a much more balanced debate and much more balanced policies on the type of energy infrastructure, which is sometimes politically controversial, but plays a major role in energy security. And I would highlight two things. One, LNG infrastructure. So new LNG plants were built. Right now, Shell is very strongly, very well cooperating with the German government, where both energy policy and foreign policy in the German government is run by the Green Party. And I'm pleased to say that we have a really good trust-based cooperation with the German government on providing LNG supply for Germany and maintaining energy security. And not in Germany, but in other European countries, you could also notice a changing conversation about nuclear power, a technology which has a tendency to be politically controversial, but it is recognized to play a major role in energy security. Now, all of these things are on the positive side. But we should also acknowledge that Europe was exceptionally lucky. So there was a very warm winter last year. And also, as LNG was redirected to Europe, LNG supply in the short term is as much as you have. LNG plants were running flat out. So for Europe to buy some more, somebody else had to buy less. The most important somebody was China. 
And I'm afraid that was not a conscious desire from the Chinese government to express solidarity with Europe. That was the result of the zero COVID policy. So Europe was lucky that the largest LNG importer had these unusual circumstances. And the other parts of the world which bought less, that's primarily developing countries, there we observed the significant negative consequences of Europe buying up all the LNG, and countries stuck without electricity, major blackouts took place, they had to switch back to fuel oil, they had to switch back to coal. There was an on-the-record statement from the Prime Minister of Pakistan that they give up on LNG and they will build Chinese-financed coal plants and produce their domestic coal. So Europe has made good progress, strong strategic response, but it was very much helped by luck. And in the second stage, attention also will need to be paid on the negative consequences of the European crisis management in the developing world. Well, let's, I want to touch on almost everything that you just shared in your answer, but let's keep on Europe for just a moment, because we also saw pretty significant public policy change over the last year and a half. Price caps for gas can be imposed now if certain market conditions arise. European policymakers have made interventions in the power market because the cost of shifting to LNG was so high. And there's a sense that the fiscal cost, the amount of support that had to be given to businesses and consumers just can't be maintained for five or 10 years as the transition is fully articulated. What do you make of these policies? I mean, from an analyst perspective, it took a long time to build liberalized power markets. And clearly, price was the thing that drew LNG to Europe over the course of the year. So on a personal note, as a young energy economist 20 years ago, my first great adventure was eliminating the communist era's ridiculously distorted price levels in Hungary, which I'm very proud that we did it. But it also led to a really nasty election campaign. A new prime minister came in, fired my boss, the chairman of the regulator, and very soon I was looking for exciting new opportunities. So I have a strong empathy for situations where the good energy economics practice and the political social reality conflict uh, conflict with each other. I think the lesson from the European crisis management is deeper, namely that the energy system is losing its strategic flexibility. Because with a bit of a simplification, the old flexibility sources, so in a conventional energy system, if there is a shock to the gas system, the energy system will burn more coal. And in a conventional energy system, there's a rather elastic substitution between coal and gas and between fuel oil and gas, which creates for a smoother price formation. Mm-hmm. Now, from this, we move to an energy system where the old dirty flexibility sources are no longer there. So the most striking aspect of the European crisis management is that last year, uh, gas-fired power generation in Europe actually increased. Mm. As the droughts uh, knocked out hydropower production, there were trouble in French nuclear production, gas was the last line of defense, and it had to run at whatever price and whatever market circumstances. Right. In fact, that there was a bit of a increase in European coal, and that's greatly overhyped in the media, frankly. When you look at the data, the last big gas market shock was post-Fukushima, when Japan suddenly needed more LNG. And there was a much stronger surge of European coal use at that time. But a lot of those coal plants are not surging anymore for the simple reason that they have already been bulldozed away. Mm-hmm. Now, the phase-out of those dirty high-carbon sources is an unavoidable aspect of the energy transition, but they are already going out, whereas the new flexibility sources, anything from parking electric cars to green hydrogen, have not yet reached a critical mass. 
Right. So we are now entering a period when the energy system is more rigid, less elastic than it used to be. And standard microeconomics would tell you that in a situation like this, any market shock will trigger a quite violent price response. And I think this is where I think the energy economics profession has to have a sense of reality that there is a certain level of price volatility, which is just simply not acceptable for society. So I was not surprised by the discussions on price caps, and I was not surprised by the various uh, market interventions. Uh, I think the appropriate stance for the industry is not to take a pure neoliberal position, because that's just not going to be politically acceptable for, for society. But the proper stance for the industry is to work with governments and try to design solutions which can mitigate the unacceptable social consequences by maintaining as much market functioning as possible. What does that imply for how we think about the global energy system at the same time, right? We're going to talk a little bit about the new shell scenario. And can we take lessons from the European experience and project them onto the global energy system amidst transition? So like one key question might be, LNG played a vital energy security role over the past year. But there's an obvious contradiction between having an enormous LNG system that's utilized to full capacity for the next three or four decades and meeting the climate targets that the world has set for itself. So how do we design a system that has enough capacity to meet energy security needs, but can still decarbonize effectively? So one of the overarching themes that we incorporated in the new, new scenarios is security and volatility. We found that security is an overarching theme. But where we feel that the future can go in different directions, and this is a distinguishing factor of our scenarios, is the philosophical question of what do we actually mean by security? Because security can have a more backward-looking, more conservative interpretation. I basically say that security means that we have to stick to a well-understood legacy system, dig out fossil fuels domestically, and encourage imports from geopolitical friends. Mm -hmm. And there have been signals pointing in this direction. So last year... China's domestic coal production uh, surged by, in energy terms, by 7 exajoules. And Shell's total global oil and gas production is around 6.5. Yeah. So China added more energy in the form of coal than what Shell produces in the world. Now, but there is also another interpretation of security, namely that it is the fossil fuel-dominated energy system itself, which is a security risk. And the way to achieve security is to lean forward, and achieve security by an accelerated energy transition. And we see signals of that as well. For me, a good example is Poland. Poland is governed by the Law and Justice Party, which in the American political system, they would be solidly in the Trump camp. Mm -hmm. uh, very robust views on immigration, gay marriage, abortion. Poland is an amazing success story on both heat pump deployment and also offshore wind development mm -hmm. because this robustly conservative Polish government came to the conclusion that offshore wind-based electrification is the appropriate strategic response to the geopolitical situation that they face. And they're making heavy investments in nuclear power as well. Yes, indeed. So let's name the scenarios. Let's talk a little bit about your report. The last time you were here, you were putting this new version of the Shell Scenarios report together. It's out now. And it's got some really interesting insights that I want to probe with you. Two scenarios, four key players throughout the report. Can you give us just a brief description of the terminology, and then we can talk about some of the details? Yes. So one very important aspect that we brought in into the analysis is the regional divergence. So there is no single response. And we felt that it's useful to cluster countries in two dimensions. One is the physical resiliency to energy security shocks, 
And the second is the macroeconomic and political ability to bite the bullet and accept short-term economic costs. Mm -hmm. And Europe is in one interesting corner, weak resiliency, because it's decades of dependency on Russian oil and Russian gas has been the most important energy relationship of the world economy. But Europe displayed a, a remarkably strong willingness to accept short-term economic costs. A good indication of that is the high European carbon price was kept in place in the middle of a war-induced energy security shock. Yeah. We see the United States in the exact opposite corner. Very strong physical resiliency, given the self-sufficient and export-oriented nature of the American energy system. But it's fair to say that that quite weak, not macroeconomic, but political ability to accept short-term costs. For example, lifestyle change is very actively discussed in Europe. There is very little indication of lifestyle change in the American consumer data. Mm -hmm. The Inflation Reduction Act, in our opinion, was a history-making uh, legislation, but it is a legislation which was very intelligently fine-tuned for the American political context. Right. Entirely the, designed the, to avoid costs. <laughs> the, the United States is embarking on a journey to decarbonize a high-energy consumption lifestyle. Right. And that requires investment in innovation, and this is the focus uh, of the policy package. Then we also saw China, which is in the strong resiliency, strong willingness to pay a quadrant, mm -hmm. uh, strong resiliency primarily because of its domestic coal. And we also, we consider President Xi's 2016 X0 ambition to be credible and an overarching driver of Chinese energy policy. Of course, China has two important cards to play. It's industrial policy, anything from high-speed trains to ultra-high-voltage direct current transmission, and also its industrial policy is scaling up the manufacturing of clean energy. And then there was this force cluster, we call them the surfers. Mm -hmm. This is the developing world outside China, which are countries that are, are waving the, uh, surfing the waves mm -hmm. of opportunity. They proactively aim to leapfrog into new energy technologies, but they are also quite cautious of their energy security and macroeconomic vulnerabilities. And they are also completely unapologetic about the, the need to have energy to power their development. As these four players interact, the two scenarios that we designed, one is with a backward-looking interpretation of security, and we call this the archipelago scenario, where the world falls apart to disjointed, uncooperative islands. And the other is the sky scenario with a forward-looking interpretation of security. This is also a security scenario, but this is a scenario where clean energy technology becomes a bit like space technology during the Cold War, where fantastic scientific achievements were made, not because of cooperation, but because of competition. Mm. So unsurprisingly, the archipelago scenario has a higher fossil fuel demand. But interestingly... Renewable energy and energy efficiency has such a powerful energy security contribution that even in the archipelago scenario, we have peak global carbon dioxide emissions and then a decline. So we no longer have a scenario comparable to the IPCC's high and very high emission pathways. So we think that, we think that both energy technology and policy action pass the point of no return. Whereas in the sky scenario, given the short-term disruptions, the sky scenario overshoots the 1.5 target. It peaks at 1.7, and then it climbs back to 1.5 with a significant application of carbon removal. Right. So you have two scenarios. You've got archipelagos, and you've got sky. And the sky one is not necessarily less geopolitical, but rather the geopolitics in the sky scenario lead to competition over innovation, competition between, let's say, 
the U.S. and China for influence and economic integration with the developing world that favors decarbonization. Archipelago is one where other economic priorities take precedence over competition around decarbonization. Is that roughly correct? Yes, yes. Now, there are very important obstacles that are effectively tackled in this kind of scenario, but not tackled in archipelagos. So one is financing. So there's, a, there's currently a critical underinvestment in clean energy in the developing world. The Netherlands has more solar panels than the African continent. Now, I live in the Netherlands. It's a magnificent country. But if you spend some time in the Netherlands and you observe uh, the weather, uh, you, you will share my skepticism whether the Netherlands having more solar panels than Africa is an optimal allocation. <laughs> uh, so, and currently in the Western world, the financial inflow into the various renewable funds, ESG funds, climate funds, you name it, is twice as much as the physical investment into renewables. But more than 90% of that money stays in the Western world. So a Canadian pension fund buys a Swedish wind farm and a German insurance company provides capital to an American electric car charging network. Right. And the sky is a scenario in which there is effective collaboration between the private sector, governments, and multilateral development banks to bridge the financing gap and channel massive amounts of clean energy investment into the developing world. So Archipelago and Sky, the differences between a roughly two and a half degree C world at the end of this yes. century and a 1.5 degree C world. I think we should pause and say, first of all, compared to when you or I started working on climate change, this is already relatively good news. There is no business as usual four degree scenario that is being contemplated. Now, from what I just heard you say, is the evolution of the energy system or of greenhouse gas emissions in China, Europe, the United States, particularly different between these two scenarios or is the difference really in the developing and emerging markets? No, it's particularly different. So one is the, at the end of the journey, when societies reach net zero emissions and both the United States, Europe and Japan reaches net zero emissions mid-century in this kind of scenario. But the per capita production of low carbon energy in the United States in the net zero state is one and a half times higher than in Europe because the symbol of the European transition is the city of Paris converting Rue de Rivoli for walking and biking the symbol of the American transition is the gigantic electric pickup trucks with their 800 kilogram size batteries. Got it. So essentially, in the sky scenario, mid-century, the United States has a recognizably American lifestyle just without carbon dioxide emissions. And that requires significantly more low carbon supply per capita mm -hmm. than either Japan or Western Europe. Right. So that is one, one important difference. Another important difference is China has a much higher reliance on the type of top-down technologies which the Chinese government has been historically very effective in developing. So China has massive-scale deployment of long-distance ultra-high direct transmission. Also, China has massive-scale deployment of the third-generation nuclear technology, mm -hmm. which are these $10 billion, 10 years to build type projects, yep. which are very difficult to see any Western company building them ever again, but China has been building them quite effectively. We have consciously incorporated this type of changes. In the case of India, we see a very prosperous Indian middle class emerging. Mm -hmm. And the preliminary data suggests uh, that this Indian middle class is adopting 
an almost like Europe 2.0 style lifestyle. So India, in terms of its India in its economic structure, is not becoming a China 2.0. It has a much lighter economic structure, much lower reliance on energy intensive heavy industry. Mm-hmm. India is also not becoming a United States 2.0 in terms of the lifestyle that they adopt. But the emerging middle class, the data analytics suggests that it's it's not very far from being a Europe 2.0, of course, without winter heating. That is not needed in India. But more summer cooling, likely. More summer cooling. More summer cooling. But in terms of how the per capita use of electric appliances grows with GDP, or how the average living space grows with GDP, or how the demand for transport services grows with GDP. On these parameters, we, we analyze like 100 different types of energy use. And on these parameters, the emerging closest analogy to the emerging Indian middle class is not China or the United States, but Europe, which is a lighter, lower energy consumption development pathway. Plus, in India, there is no winter heating need. So as I take it, there's kind of two large differences between your archipelago scenario, which I could roughly call the business. It feels like that's the world we're moving toward. And the sky scenario, which is one where we accomplish stronger climate goals, faster emissions reductions. And they are more effective climate finance or a finance of low carbon infrastructure, excuse me, because it doesn't necessarily have to be climate finance, right? In the developing world. And a lot more carbon capture and storage, right? Carbon management is a truly large industry in a world that is going to maintain below two degrees centigrade. Yes. So CCS is one of the major differences because while renewables, energy efficiency, or electric cars have a powerful energy security and economic competitive narrative, Mm -hmm. in my experience, China is by far the largest electric car manufacturer. And in my, my experience, when you talk to leaders in the Chinese electric car industry, they are not talking about climate change. They are talking about the desire to dominate the new industries of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. They are talking about oil import dependency concerns, and they are talking about urban air quality. Yeah. And these considerations are very powerful drivers of, of electric cars. Unfortunately for CCS, facility with CCS will always be more expensive and more complicated than the same facility without it. All cost. Uh, they, uh, <laughs> so you do CCS to capture the carbon dioxide molecule and prevent it from letting it to the air. Right. Uh, that is its benefit. And consequently, CCS is a technology which really takes off in massive scale only in the scenarios where we incorporate a specific decarbonization driver. Right. You have to want to do CCS. It just doesn't happen on the basis of spontaneous free markets. Now, we actually see a magic moment that we see a critical mass of governments going much further in promoting CCS than ever before, certainly including the United States. Yep. So the business model of CCS is much more robust than ever before. And we also see an emerging private market for carbon removal, that there are consumers, especially large corporations who have increasingly stringent and increasingly demanding net zero targets, which are translated into a private market demand for paying a premium for carbon removal services. Well, you also see a shift, right? So Europe is standing up a CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. And I also sense like, as you have carbon pricing mechanisms spread throughout the economy, they could be voluntary at the corporate level, they could be at the state level. There is going to be an economic incentive for even for producers who might not have a domestic carbon price for their own consumption 
to be playing in markets that are pricing carbon or that have a demand for low carbon products, their CCS might experience a lot of demand. Yes, but I mean, global CCS activity currently is a bit more than 40 million tons. And in the archipelago scenario, it is a hard slog. Mm-hmm. So you have a project here, a project there, whereas in Sky, it plays a significant role. Now, one thing I've always kind of has puzzled me is, you know, we think about this finance problem for low carbon infrastructure in the developing world. And oftentimes that's a cost of capital issue, project selection issue, you know, but you're talking about building solar farms and wind farms and renewables in the developing world as the principal energy source. But how do we think about CCS in an emerging market context? I can understand wealthy industrialized countries making the necessary investments and be willing to shoulder the cost. How do you think about it in an emerging market context? In some cases, like the world's first CCS equipped steel production is in the United Arab Emirates. Now, of course, the United Arab Emirates is a major oil producer, so they, they have oil revenues. But still, it was a remarkable strategic foresight for them to spend that mm-hmm. money on a, on a CCS equipped steel plant. We see CCS primarily as an industrial story. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the electricity system, wind, solar, storage technologies, uh, nuclear do the heavy lifting. And in industry, in industry, a combination of carbon pricing and consumers willing to pay a premium plays a critical role in kickstarting, uh, kickstarting CCS investment. But you are absolutely right that this is still this is still an unresolved uh, an unresolved issue. Mm. So, in either scenario that you're looking at, you've got the evolution of the energy system is one where oil production is sort of plateaued from here Uh and peaks in the next decade or decade and a half and then slowly declines faster in the sky scenario than in the archipelago scenario. You can roughly understand that result. Gas supply does something interesting. World gas consumption peaks in the 2020s, but LNG consumption peaks in the 2030s in the sky scenario. Can you help us understand that apparent contradiction? Yes. Yeah, so the, a very important question that we had to ask is, do we see an end game from the Russia-Ukraine war, which would lead to the energy relationship between Russia and Europe being restored? Mm. Can we envisage uh, something like Germany after 1945, a complete regime change, a complete new political system in which like Germany and France became trusted friends after fighting major wars with each other. I think that this would be desirable. The world would be a better place, but we are not optimistic about that. It's very difficult to see how the, the end game could lead to Russia going through the type of process which Germany did after the Second World War. So essentially, both of the scenarios are based on the assumption that the political trust is fundamentally broken between Europe and Russia. And that basically means that whereas in the case of oil, Russia was remarkably skillful in evading sanctions and finding its way to international oil markets, primarily to the major Asian economies who, who are still willing to buy Russian oil. So in oil, the major impact is that the Russian oil industry is locked out from Western technology and locked out from Western investment. And interestingly enough, despite the pro-Russia political rhetorics in China, Chinese energy companies have not moved into Russia in a systematic fashion. Right. So in the short, medium term, the impact on Russian oil production is minor. 
but in the 10-year time horizon, a quite significant impact on Russian oil production. Whereas in the case of gas, we don't think that there is a practical option for Russia to redirect the former European gas exports to the Asian markets. That's a cluster of production in West Siberia, very, very far from key Asian markets under very challenging geographical conditions. So a lot of Russian gas just simply stays underground. So the green activist community likes to campaign that keep it under the ground. Vladimir Putin is successfully keep it under the ground. As a result, you have LNG developments in the United States, in Canada, in other parts of the world, which are stepping in to replace that in global supplies. Plus, in important gas-using countries, primarily Europe, but also in some places in Asia like Thailand, domestic gas production is in a terminal and irreversible decline. So there are also LNG volumes which are stepping in to replace domestic gas production in those gas-using economies. One question that I think is pervades thinking on global energy right now is how we keep one system afloat and profitable while the other one is rising, right? You mentioned, we were talking earlier about Europe and the system actually becoming less flexible than it used to be because you have to spin down one and the other's not quite ready yet. You can read the scenario that your team has put together and globally we might be in a a similar bind for several decades. What does this imply for prices for oil, prices for gas, for the supply chains of clean energy? All that stuff's going to be moving around really quickly. So volatility is an overarching theme. So as we speak, European gas prices are actually back at the pre-war level. Right. A warm winter, LNG production performing well, and progress or renewables and efficiency. Now, we can have a cold winter, we can have another drought affecting hydropower production. We can have Chinese LNG even picking up. I'm not trying to predict wholesale market price levels, but the volatility that, that we observe is quite remarkable. Another thing that we have been warning about is as you reduce oil and gas demand during the energy transition, the idea that you reduce oil and gas demand by 10% and energy security automatically improves is somewhat naive because of two reasons. One, Imagine that you are freezing in your unheated home. Unpleasant experience. Right. But how unpleasant this experience, it doesn't depend on whether you are freezing in an efficient home that normally would require only a little gas, or whether you are freezing in an inefficient home, which would require a lot of gas. If you don't have gas and freezing in your home, the social and political impact is very serious. Very significantly, When you use gas turbines to maintain grid stability in a power system, you don't use a lot of gas. But if you don't have it, the entire system goes down. So it is very easy to envisage an energy security shock with major political and social implications at a 20% lower demand. Plus, investment also adjusts. Global oil and gas investment is more than one-third below the pre-Paris Agreement peak. And the industry has been adjusting to the energy transition in its investment activities. And I would say that I find an interesting disconnect that among the political leaderships, there is a strong appreciation of energy security and there are well-balanced uh, policies being proposed. But the sustainable finance discussions are still very often excessively ideological. And the sustainable finance discussions excessively focus on shutting down oil and gas supply, whereas the big issue is building the new system. 
And what would be beneficial is to have a more balanced sustainable finance framework, creating guidance of what does it actually mean for a major energy company to be aligned with the Paris Agreement, mm-hmm. focusing on the clean energy investment component, rather than the frankly rather simplistic messages of stop supplying oil and gas. We had Terence Keeley on our podcast, who spent a long time in the investment community, was an executive at BlackRock, and he wrote a book on criticizing ESG and the sustainability investment for exactly that challenge, being too focused on investing out and not focused enough on investing in. I mean, since the Paris Agreement was signed, Shell divested dozens of billion dollars of worth of oil and gas assets. There is no indication whatsoever that any of those divestments help the energy transition. In fact, given that Shell has better than average performance in our own emissions and on metal leakage on other environmental aspects, one could very reasonably argue that when large, transparent, publicly operated companies are forced to divest their assets, that actually hurts the transition. So I understand that from the sustainable investment front, but is there? do you eventually reach a point where simply financing oil and gas infrastructure will be challenging because the payback might not be there. So this is already a very important dilemma because 2050 is not that long time from now. Unfortunately they, not. They, <laughs> they, they, so it is well within the technical lifetime of new infrastructure assets. And this is an area where it is absolutely essential to have cooperation between the industry and governments. I, I like to say that the LNG business is in a similar strategy position than Lockheed. We all agree that war is terrible, and we all agree that humanity should transition to world peace. Right. And once we are in world peace, the products of Lockheed will not be needed. But I don't think governments tell Lockheed to stop investing and innovating right. today. From an emissions perspective. Uh, uh, so, and from a capital cost recovery point of ah, view. Yep, right. And in that, case, in that case, there has to be an effective collaboration between governments and the private sector. The Shell Technology team analyzed... Uh, multiply possible pathways of how you can reposition an LNG asset into a zero-carbon asset. Right. They all have some combination of carbon capture and storage and hydrogen one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Now, neither of them are easy. All of them require a policy framework. And very importantly, these are the type of projects which you might not want to build greenfield if you wanted to design a perfect clean energy system from a clean sheet of paper. These are assets where you consciously have to have a transition strategy for, the, for those assets. And this is a conversation where it is, where, where it is absolutely essential right. to have a good collaboration between the key governments and the industry. And here I feel like we've started to have this conversation in isolated pockets, right? So I've attended seminars with German analysts looking at how do you build an LNG import terminal, not necessarily the regasification unit, but like the tanks and the pipeline system, the storage system, so that it could eventually keep hydrogen or ammonia. And there you need, like, the concrete pads have to be bigger because the tanks that you're going to use for ammonia are are heavier. There's a lot of sort of mundane engineering that you need to be a little bit thoughtful of. Plus, it is very well possible that in a mid-century zero-carbon energy system, direct electrification with wind and solar might well be a more cost-efficient solution. And the people who argue that in that direction, they they have solid technical arguments. However, what we have to keep in mind is that if you imagine a state of affairs in the world economy, that from tomorrow morning, every single new capital asset that is built anywhere in the world is purely zero carbon. 
globally. So every new tractor in the Pakistani agriculture is running on hydrogen, or every new cement factory in Mexico is a CCSF with cement factory. Mm -hmm. Now, we are not yet in that happy state of affairs, but if we were, but operated the existing capital stock with a normal depreciation time, that's more than 1.6 degrees. Right. So the existing capital stock alone overshoots the 1.5 budget. And increasingly, the question is not going to be what is the ideal clean energy system designed from a clean sheet of paper. Increasingly, the question is going to be how do we transition the capital stock that we have? Right. As you said, 2050 is not so far away. It's not so far away. Totally plausible that I'll still be working in 2050. As a person who's very concerned about the risk of climate change, wants to ensure energy security, would love to see the benefits of energy resources spread to more people in the world. Given this scenario analysis you've done, how should we be spending our time? I think energy investment, energy policy plays a critically important role. And with a bit of a simplification, you have to do three things. One, you have to throw in the kitchen sink to increase investment in the already mature technologies. So wind, solar, electric cars, energy efficiency. Second, accelerate innovation in new energy technologies. Now, very importantly, these are not alternative strategies. You cannot choose between the two. Mm -hmm. It is the cumulative emissions that matter. So you have to throw in the kitchen sink right now. But with the already major technologies, you can eliminate half, maybe two-thirds of global emissions, and then you hit the wall. Mm -hmm. So you have to accelerate the innovation in the hard-to-abit uh, sectors. And the third is every day it becomes more and more likely that the carbon concentration will overshoot. So the third thing is that we also have to work on carbon removal in a very systematic fashion. And there are, there are multiple area, uh, areas. So project managers are needed. Engineers are needed. Lawyers are needed. I mean, I have to say that licensing a clean energy project in a Western democracy is, is a real adventure. <laughs> As, uh, policy specialists are needed. Also, in these scenarios, we were conservative on consumer behavioral change. But... I have a great respect for people who campaign for consumer behavior change mm. because the more conscious consumer behavior change you have, the lower the bar is for the engineers and the project managers. So there are multiple areas and multiple professions where you can have a very valuable and greatly respected contribution. Two more questions. The first is on the mineral resource necessary for energy transition. In either case that you show, we're going to need a lot more copper, lithium, graphite, Obviously, more in the sky scenario sooner. Are you concerned that that becomes as geopolitical as oil and gas were in the 20th century? So we worked with major mining companies on the mineral side, and we worked with major equipment manufacturers on the manufacturing scale-up, because after the mineral, you have to turn that into the kit. And our conclusion was that this issue does not have to derail the transition, but it could. Mm. It is a major issue it is a major issue which requires careful attention. Now, what we observe is a dual response. One is that the mining companies are looking for options. And five years ago, there was a lot of, a lot of discussion about Bolivian lithium. Mm -hmm. Today, Australia is already the number one lithium producer in the global economy. And of course, Australia is this quintessential triple uh, rated stable democracy which has a 100-year tradition of export-oriented mining. Mm -hmm. Very similarly, there are companies looking for uh, nickel and copper in Canada, in some parts of the United States, and so on. So, so, so this supply response is ongoing. Now, parallel to that, companies like LG or Tesla also got done to work. 
And there's a very interesting innovation in new battery chemistries, or let's say 10 years ago, every wind turbine relied on rarer metals. Today, there are very important onshore wind turbine designs which don't rely on rarer metals. Offshore wind turbines still do. So in this kind of scenario, a combination of investment and innovation solves this problem, but it is not a trivial problem at all. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why in archipelagos, the transition fails, because all the metal availability and all the manufacturing is just a hard slog. Mm, interesting. So a third distinguishing characteristic between the scenarios, we already talked about the growth of finance for low carbon. We talked about CCS yes. and then and an the, the active scale management up. scale. Exactly. Or, and, and that requires yeah. government policy, right? Like they, it, they, it, need, they yes. need to kick in the pants. Yep. Julian Simon yep. is not going to solve this problem yep. for us with pure price signals. Yes. Last question. Artificial intelligence. The rise of AI looks like it could transform a lot of different sectors of the economy. Are you starting to think about how this is going to affect our energy future? Yes. So where, where we incorporated very optimistic parameters on the contribution of, of digital technology in general is the ability of the power system to manage very, very large volumes of wind and solar production. The conventional energy transition models almost always have a massive scale expansion of electricity network investment, which is, I mean, is desirable and by, by all means build every transmission line that you can politically build. But realistically, the electricity network is going to be a scarce asset. Also, we have very rapid transport electrification. It's very clear that it's inconceivable to have a copper-plated electricity network supplying electrified transport with dump charging. Right. We have quite optimistic scenario assumptions uh, built in on how machine learning can improve wind and solar forecasting, how it enhances the flexibility of the power system, the systematic application of the Internet of Things can expand the capacity of the existing network. And last but not least, parking electric cars are a major flexibility solution. Now, we did not incorporate the self-driving car technology into the scenarios. So, so, so the big elephant in the room is the self-driving vehicle technology, which could be transformative, and it can have widely different energy implications depending on how society will exactly use could massively expand consumption. Exactly. Could be used very efficiently. Exactly. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. So that's that that we didn't incorporate into the scenarios. All right. Interesting. Well, Laszlo, it's always great to discuss with you and learn from you. Congratulations on the report, and we look forward to seeing you again here in Washington. Thank you very much. Thanks to Laszlo for joining us again. We always enjoy his insights and look forward to having him back again soon. If you want to know more about the Shell scenarios, there's a link in the show notes. They make for an interesting and thoughtful read. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, for updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening. 